Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to answer your Bible questions. If you have questions about the Bible, feel free to send them to us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to join us face-to-face, we are live streaming on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and if you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to where we're either counting down to the next broadcast or presenting the present one. You can join us on the right-hand side of the screen in our chat box or, of course, email us at a later time at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you, again, need proper spelling, that resource is available to you. If you're joining us on Reach Radio and listening, know that's how you can get your questions to us. But note as well, if you prefer social media, Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is A Reason for Hope. We'll be keeping an eye on those venues as well, but our main main ministry media meeting place will, of course, be on our website because, well, they can't block us there. We've had interesting run-ins with them in the past, so we want to encourage you, if you are following us on social media and we don't show up for for mentioned or previous technical difficulties that we'll inform you of as they come, feel free to join us there. They can't ban us on our own platform yet. Uh, Note that the standards for the questions are sincerity, the forms of questions, of course, being asked should be that they are questions, and that they're concerning the Bible, that the substance of the answer is found in the Bible. Not that it mentions the Bible, but ultimately goes beyond it. We'll be happy to receive those questions if they meet that criteria. And note as well, if you're wondering if the question's insufficient or uh, unworthy of airtime, again, a lot of people are thinking that the bad questions are either the ones that are off topic or that aren't asked. We want to encourage you to participate in the broadcast as long as those standards are kept. We are looking forward to engaging with you. But before any engagements and, of course, our rhetoric lesson for the week, uh, why don't we start off with a word of prayer and make sure that God speaks more than we do. Sounds good. All right. Dad, thank you that we have the honor of not only being recipients of your word, but also of your spirit. Allow him to fill us and equip us for every good work as you've called us to do. We know that we're sinners, but that you are our Savior. And by your grace, we ask that we would serve you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So rhetoric, obviously the art of communication. We want to make sure that our ideas are not only coherent, but that they're straight. And when we are keeping our ideas straight, we need to make sure we remember how to not only recognize the issue, but when the issue is being deviated from, or in this case, thrown back at us without actually being dealt with. You don't return to sender unless an error has actually been made. So when we're talking about this issue, The next fallacy that we'll be talking about, the mistake or, I guess, miscategorization is the word I was looking for, in thinking is the Latin phrase tu quoque, which is a form of something we've already discussed, the attack on the person, the ad hominem, but in a different style. How is that? Yeah, so tu quoque, in case you don't speak Latin, just means you also. And and so uh, just like ad hominem, for those of you guys who are following along in our rhetoric lessons, ad hominem is not 
actually engaging with someone in their argument, but it is attacking the person. So it'd be like someone giving you a well thought out argument about, you know, their belief systems and you going, well, you know, you suck, you know, that that's ad hominem, you know, so you're, you're not actually engaging with them on any intellectual level. You're just attacking them straight off this to quoque fallacy. It's more commonly known as what about ism. So have you ever heard that phrase? What about ism? That's the two quoque fallacy because most people, again, don't speak Latin and don't want to sound pretentious. So they just call it what about ism. Um, this is, and I actually like that phrase because that's exactly what it is. I usually am going to use this fallacy when an accusation is leveled against me. So when someone is attacking my position, I respond by attacking them in a completely unrelated fashion. So it, in recent months, you could see this happening, uh, say with the January 6th hearing. So uh, people are investigating what happened on January 6th, where a bunch of rioters went into the Capitol building in the United States to protest the election of Joseph Biden against Donald Trump. Now, some Republicans have responded to that and said, well, what about all the BLM riots? So that is a different issue. You still have to address the accusations that they have made against January 6th. You can't just say, well, what about this other thing? You have to intellectually address what's being leveled at you. Now, there is a way to do that. There is a proper way to point out hypocrisy, which we'll talk about later. But for the sake of this, you have to understand if someone gives you an argumentation against your belief system, you have to be ready to deal with that accusation and not just say, well, what about that? So a good example happens in Islam versus Christian debates all the time. So a Christian will bring up hey, in your sources, you say that Allah is a loving God, right? Be like, well, yeah. Well, how come it says over and over again in the Quran that Allah does not love people who don't do right things? Or how about the fact that Allah actually says that Christians and polytheists are the worst of people, the worst of creatures, sorry, not just people. Uh, it doesn't really sound like Allah does love everybody. It does sound like Allah has some favorites and it seems like it's the Islamic people and everybody else is on his bad side unless they convert. And the answer that usually a lot of Muslims will give in that moment is, well, what about your God? He has the Israelites wipe out the Canaanites. What about that? So that is a fair accusation. However, it doesn't address what you said, right? So if you're bringing up an accusation against their God, they have to defend that on its own merits. They cannot then attribute some sort of a false accusation to you or a true accusation to you. They have to be interested in what you said. Because note, at the end of that conversation, what have they proven? Now you've got two people that hate others, yeah. not <laughs> one less person, which is what you're hopefully trying to prove, or clarifying the hatred as being of behavior rather than of them intrinsically. Mm -hmm. That's the point. If they make this argument, and even if it's due with credit where it's due, you can't make that claim or that conclusion and get yourself off the hook. Mm -hmm. Changing the topic or adding a subplot to this story just makes the movie longer. It doesn't actually resolve the story. Right. Absolutely. So if you guys have been kind of keeping track, I have been trying to pick the fallacies in order of how often I see them. And I think this one does fit neatly in the little list that we've been going over. And the reason why is because you see it all over the place. It happens all the time, especially in politics. But beyond politics, 
I see this one happening a lot in interpersonal conflict. So I see it a lot as a counselor between husband and wife. I see it a lot between parents and their kids or even friends where communication starts to break down and this whataboutism starts to rule the day. So a wife catches the husband doing something unsavory and she says, I can't believe you did this to me. And he turns around and says, well, what about the fact that you don't love me? Or what about the fact that you mistreat me? So this is very common. It's very prevalent within interpersonal conflict. And we need to know not only what it is so that we don't do it, right? So that we're very careful to actually respond to accusations in humility and in honesty, but also to recognize it when you hear your opponent do it or the person that you're trying to talk to do it so that you could address it properly and not go into the weeds, which is what happens when conversations deteriorate into whataboutism. So if you give into it, then the conversation just deteriorates into a shooting match, right? So it's just like, well, you did this. Well, you did that. Well, you did this. And it goes back and forth that way until, I don't know, someone gets tired and walks away. But it doesn't really lead to anything good. And this is why, once again, in marital conflict, if you find yourself having 16 arguments within one, that's probably because you guys have devolved into whataboutism. It's because you're just pointing fingers at one another and not, and you can't even remember what the original conflict was about. And so, not resolving any of them. Right. <laughs> not resolving any of them, just putting them on the shelf and waiting to pick it up again. And now you'll have 17 different arguments to fight about. So we need to be very careful about this. We need to know what it is and again, how to address it properly. Any, anything else you want to get into. Uh, you actually wanted to share a passage. Yeah. Uh, when it, we are looking for examples in the Bible, obviously there are examples of bad argumentation that's addressed, but in the case of Tukokwi, our Lord actually gives us an example of how to avoid it, because as we started with the Tukokwi fallacy and all of its shining glory, you bring up the issue, and you mentioned the January 6 hearings, in order to effectively respond with the, well, what about the BLM riots? All that would be needed for that to be a valid argument is one sentence clarifying the difference. Mm. And this is what we're talking about. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 5, again, the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking about dealing with a sinful brother. Now, if this was a two-quoque fallacy, we'd only read a third of this verse, which we're seeing a lot of in this day and age. But notice how our Lord resolves that issue by finishing the sentence. In the exchange, I'm sure you're all familiar with this, let me start in verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye, hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the plank from your brother's eye. Now, where's the line? If I simply acknowledged there's a speck in your eye, and the reply is, hypocrite, there's a plank in your eye. That would be too quoque. Yeah. <laughs> but what does Jesus go on to say? First, you deal with the plank in your eye, then you will be able to see clearly to do what? Remove the speck. Both are problems, but he addresses the order in which they need to be. If you address the issue, you've resolved the argument. Then, if you level it back at the person, it's not a fallacy, it's called a response. Right. <laughs> so if we are talking to people about their issues and you say, well, what about this issue in your life? Or even maybe you know someone's being a little fast and loose with the truth and you want to call out an inconsistency by answering their question with a question. You don't commit the two quoque fallacy if you can first clarify to the person with full sincerity, got to clarify that, 
that you are saying, I'll be happy to deal with that issue if you can first clarify something with me. So you're talking to a Muslim. Where did Jesus say, I am God, worship me? You can deal with that by addressing the criteria. Where did he say, I'm only a prophet, don't worship me? They can go to passages in the Quran, or they can accuse you of saying too quickly or changing the topic. Well, that's not the point. That's not the intent. That's not the motive. You may need to take a step back and go, well, here's this passage, this passage, and this passage. And then they'll say, no, no, no. I mean, where does he say the words, I'm only a prophet, don't worship me? Or where does he say, I'm the words, I'm, I'm God, worship me? That's when you get into the bad argument, but you need to make sure you're addressing these things, the goal of rhetoric, in proper order. Your ideas are straight. So what's the difference? Dealing with the issue. Right. If you're talking to someone, make sure that if an issue is brought up, you don't move on to another topic or don't conclude the matter until the issue's actually been addressed. Mm. There are ways of going about it. There's a, a fine art to argumentation, <laughs> as uh, Stephen Molyneux was oftentimes quoted as saying, but the point being made is just that. What's the difference? Addressing the actual issue. I bring up something, you address it, then can reply with it. You don't reply with another issue. Yeah. That's a fallacy. Absolutely. So uh, in counseling, let's use a marriage example real quick, and then we'll get into the kind of political or philosophical or theological debate. So uh, if, if a wife comes to the husband and says, you've done this. Now, this takes a large amount of humility. The reason why we don't want to respond directly to accusations is because it hurts our pride. It hurts our self-respect. It's shameful for us to talk about these things. We feel attacked. We feel threatened. So if you need to take a time out, if you need to take a space real quick, if someone comes at you in a harsh manner and you say, hey, I need, I need a second, that's okay, but you need to respond to what they're saying. You need to acknowledge what they're saying. You need to acknowledge that you've heard them. And if you have legitimately done something wrong, you need to apologize. You need to say, hey, you know what? That was wrong. I hope you can forgive me for that. Right? I hope you can forgive me for what you're saying. Uh, that's a very important part of this type of argumentation. In the Proverbs, it says, a soft answer allays wrath and contention. So if I'm going to feed the fire, if my wife comes to me and she's upset with something that I've done... If I feed the fire by accusing her of something, then, like I said, we're not going to go anywhere good. I need to acknowledge what she's saying. I need to acknowledge that I've heard her, I've listened to her, and if I feel like she's wrong and I'm going to defend myself, I need to first acknowledge that I've heard what she's had to say. Say, okay, so you're telling me that you believe I've done this. Is that accurate? She says, yeah. Then I move into defending myself, and I try to even work through it because sometimes people talk in generalizations. So they say, like, you don't care about me. Right. It would be very easy for you to say, well, that's not true, and to, to go that way. But to say, okay, well, like in what ways do I not care about you? Right, Because I do care about you, I do love you, but I acknowledge that I could be negligent sometimes. I acknowledge I could be stupid and selfish. And so in what ways do you feel like I've been neglecting you because I want to do better? No, now, you're not changing the topic, you're clarifying the topic. Exactly. You're dealing with the issue. Exactly. And, and by the way, this is also good when someone comes at you with a fiery question about the Bible. You know, so you're talking to them about Jesus, you hey, you know, why haven't you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Why don't you believe that the Scripture is divinely inspired or something like that? And someone comes back at you and says, well, you know, you Christians, look at the Inquisitions, look at the Crusades, and, you know, they start going in that direction. Now, if you want to avoid the fallacy, you need to stop and say, okay, are you telling me, right, and what you're bringing up, are you telling me that the reason you don't accept Scripture or the reason why you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior is because of this? 
right? So if I were to answer this question, right, your dad likes to say, if I were to answer this question to your satisfaction, would you put your faith in Jesus? Is this really the main issue that is preventing you from faith? Now, just saying it that way can sometimes calm people down. Sometimes it goes the opposite direction. They say like, ah, you know, you see, you're not even willing to answer the question. And what about this? And what about that? And then they bring up like 50 other things. Then you know you're not really dealing with a serious person. Or we could be the less serious person and reply with, well, what about the Holocaust? What right. about the killing fields? <laughs> what about the pogroms and all that other stuff? It's not addressing the actual issue. The right. answer, and this is just the for your edification at home, yeah. So you're objecting to Jesus because of the historical actions of his followers. Obviously, that doesn't follow. Right. Focus on Jesus. But if, on the other hand, they have this bent, obviously no one knows what the Crusades are these days, let yeah. alone the significance of the fact the Muslims founded the Inquisition. They but think they know what they are. <laughs> they're told more dangerous, what they yes. are, which is, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah like you said. But the point being made is that. Address the actual issue. If you can't answer the question quickly, great. But what happens when you're talking to people is that you're dealing just as much with emotions as you are with logic. Make sure that all are addressed. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, sometimes this also helps, again, if someone's coming at you in a fiery way, it helps for you to, we use this phrase sometimes, to steel man their argument, meaning that you are trying to sift out what you believe this person's actually saying, because they're coming across in a really ineloquent way, they're coming across in just a defamatory way, or just an emotional way. And so you're trying to say, okay, well, are you saying that the reason why you reject God is because you think he's immoral? Uh, or would you say that maybe what you're trying to communicate to me is that you find the God of the Bible immoral, right? You find his actions immoral for some reason. Or you think or, that the actions of Christians throughout history are obeying some biblical command right. that is immoral, and that you don't want to follow that. coming from Christianity as opposed to a uh, distortion of Christianity, right. right? So sometimes helping people with their thoughts is like a little bit of uh, a grace that you can give people in conversations like this. And like I said, it can calm down people in that moment. So if you're, again, you need to swallow your pride if you're in a fight with your spouse and they make some really generalized and unfair accusation against you to try to steel man their argument, to try to say, okay, well, obviously that's not true. In your head, you could just say, say do this calculus in your head. It's obviously untrue. Obviously I care about you. You know that. But try to figure out what they're saying. Okay, are you talking about this? Are you talking about that? Are you saying I don't care about you because maybe um, I forgot to buy you something that you asked me for or because I have been absentee from the house or something like that or I just haven't been paying attention to you in the way that you want, right? Try to steel man their argument the best they can. Try to help them through with their thoughts and then you can acknowledge them. Now, how do you then bring up relevant details without engaging in the two quoque fallacies. So let's you remember the actual issue. So let's go back because I think this is a good one. I think this is a good example, the January 6th committee. So if someone were to say, uh, someone who is on the left side of the aisle is accusing the right side of the aisle of insurrection. They say like, well, you know, you Republicans, you right wingers, you are just completely against the role of democracy in our elections. You just think you can overthrow any election that doesn't go your way. You're radical. You just are willing to put up with anything like this and you need to condemn it. You can, right? So if I agree with the right side of the aisle politically, I could say, yeah, January 6th was ugly. It was a disgusting display by a bunch of lunatics and they deserve to go to jail. However, <laughs> Would you be willing to acknowledge that the people, the same congressmen and senators that are screaming in the January 6th committee also 
voted against the validation of the 2016 election, claiming Russian collusion. Do you think that that's insurrection? Now, that's not whataboutism. That's saying, I want to play by the same set of rules, right? So I'm willing to acknowledge that that was wrong. Are you willing to acknowledge that that was wrong? Because if they're not, then what you see is, okay, well, then your problem isn't necessary with insurrectionary behavior. Your problem is you don't like my side. And that's it. It doesn't really matter what my side does. You're going to hate it. And it doesn't matter what your side does. You're going to love it, right? That's a problem. Now, if you're talking to a serious person and you say, okay, well, do you think that was wrong? They'll say, you know, maybe I've never really thought about that. Yeah, I guess that was wrong. Yeah, and then you know you're playing by the same set of rules and you can have a, a logical and intellectual conversation. But if they're unwilling to do that, then like I said, they're, they're not willing to play by the same set of rules and therefore it doesn't really matter. Or let's say your spouse is accusing you of something, uh, but you feel like they've actually committed the greater wrong. So let's say you get into a fight and you end up saying something that is unsavory. You know, you yell at them, which happens, right? We lose our temper, we lose our cools. It's unfortunate, we're fallen individuals, but we do it. We yell at people, uh, we call them names and we shouldn't do it, but we do. So you lose your cool in a fight, you yell, you scream at your spouse, you call them a name or something like that, and they start saying, I can't believe you said this to me, I can't believe you did it. And let's say though, that the fight was about their behavior. They had done something really wrong, and now they're just, playing the pity party about how you treated them within the fight. So it's okay to acknowledge you're wrong, right? Especially, I always tell this to husbands, like, hey, if you're the head of the house, you got to lead. And that means you need to lead in humility. You need to lead an apology. So if your wife accuses you of wrong, accept it, apologize for it, ask for forgiveness. And then if you feel like there's a relevant accusation against her, say like, okay, yes, I lost my temper. I lost my cool. I hope you can forgive me for that because that was wrong. I shouldn't have treated you that way. Okay. And then when she says, okay, I can forgive you. Then you move on. You say, however, I was reacting to something you did. So it's wrong. I'm not defending it, but I was reacting to something that you did, a behavior that you did. And I do want to address that, right? I do want to talk about that. It's probably not going to come out as cool and collected as it is right now on the air, but that's okay. It's that kind of transition. Like Sean said, take the plank out of your eye, acknowledge what you did, but then address what's going on in their life, right? That's not what aboutism. That is, that is dealing with what you got to deal with before you deal with what you want to deal with in that person's life. All right. So let us know if that's all clear. And thank you for joining us for this week in rhetoric. Now, going out to your Bible questions, uh, Kurt wants clarification in evangelism. When people ask, repent from what? How should we respond? Um, so I guess this would be, I, I've never actually said this to somebody. I've never actually yeah, gone wanna... to someone and said, <laughs> repent, you know, but, uh, I, I get, you know, if, if someone's on that page, they know what repentance is, right? Repentance is turning away. It's a change of mind, right? So it's having a change of mind about a behavior. I guess what you're saying is I'm encouraging that person to change away from a behavior that I find unsavory. Like, let's say they're having a lot of sex with a lot of random strangers or something like that. And I'm utilizing that to show them that they're not living up to God's standards, and therefore God has a right to judge them, and they need to accept forgiveness through Christ, right? I'm assuming it's it's a conversation kind of like that. Yeah, and they the word say— forgiveness would be exchanged for how repentance is oftentimes used. doesn't mean the same thing, but remember you're talking to a 21st century American, not a 1st century Jew. Right. Uh, and I always use this— 
this progression in my mind. It's, it's very useful. It's something that Aristotle said, and I think he's just particularly right about this. He said, you know, like how things work, the progression of human thought goes like this. It's what we think about the metaphysical world. In other words, what we believe about our consciousness is what we believe about religion, what we believe about God, what we believe about the afterlife. And then that informs how we understand the physical world, what we see around us, and then that informs what we think about the ethical world. So if I'm confronting someone about their ethics, but they fundamentally disagree with me about God, I'm not really going to get anywhere with that person. Even if you mention God, because That's right. they don't know what that means. That's right. So if I say, your, your behavior is wrong, you need to repent, they're like, well, I don't believe in God. So repent from what? Well, then guess what I got to do? I got to convince them that there's a God. Right? So I got to do some work and say, like, well, why don't you accept that there's a God? Because if I could get them to accept that there is a God, then I can get them to accept that they're violating God's commandments. But I can't get them there unless they first acknowledge that there's at least a possibility of God. So that might mean you need to take some steps back and say, okay, I thought this person acknowledged at least an existence of God. Maybe I thought that they were functioning on a similar moral structure as me. But now I know that they're not. So I need to back up and figure out where the diversion is, and I need to start addressing them on that manner. Or maybe even just plan ahead in conversations and anticipate this person doesn't speak, you know, metanoia. Right. They speak English. So I should say, hey, did you know there's a God out there that loves you? Right. And they say, oh, yeah, I believe God loves me. Oh, tell me about him. Right. That is a much more productive conversation than, hark thou, uh, we are sharing faith in Jesus Christ, who has resurrected for the uh, atonement of thy sins through propitiation of his blood, through the sacrifice system of Leviticus. I wouldn't understand what you're saying, and I thought of it. So that's the point that we need to make. You approach people as people, not as speaking points or especially as slogan receptacles. Yeah, and, and by the way, when you look through the book of Acts, that's the progression you see the apostles going in. That when they're talking to Jews, they don't have to do that because they already accept God. They accept the same God that the apostles believed in. Yeah, they start they, in Matthew, right? That's right. They just start with Jesus is the Messiah. He is the only begotten God. He is God incarnate. He died for our sins, and if we put our faith in him, he fulfills the law, right? That's where they start with them. Because they with, know what law means, they know what sacrifice means, they know what Messiah means, they know what they're saying. That's right. But if you look at the gospel presentations to the Gentiles, not like that, right? Yeah, Acts 17, he starts in Genesis, God who made everything. Right. <laughs> Let's start there. <laughs> Let's just start there. There's a God, he made stuff. Let's talk about him. In him we live and move and have our being. So he tries to do that. And you notice that he actually doesn't really get into, in Acts 17, he doesn't get into the propitiatory nature of Jesus' sacrifice. He just right? he talks about the resurrection. That's right. And that was enough to lose him. But you yeah. know, like once, once yeah. they accept, okay, so because he's trying to help them understand that things done in the body have relevance, and therefore God can judge us for these things. We call that sin, right? So you could see where Paul's progression's going. They cut him off. Some of them didn't. And then he no. kept talking to them, and they accepted the gospel. So he had to start somewhere, though. He's like, there's a God that made everything. Okay. Our bodies matter, and they will be raised from the dead. This is proven through the resurrection of Christ. Once they accepted that, he says, therefore, there are things done in our bodies that are wrong and that God can righteously judge us for. And once you get someone there, then you can help them accept the fact that, well, you need to be forgiven. This is the means in which God has provided forgiveness. Do you want to put your faith in what Jesus has done for you? Do you want to accept him as your Savior, right? So the gospel is always going to be presented differently depending on what levels of agreement someone has with you. 
regarding their understanding of, again, metaphysics, physics, ethics, and the rest. Yeah, so let us know if that helps you out, Kurt. Talk to people as if they're people. Make sure that we don't uh, treat people as if they should be in seminary. <laughs> that point being made, uh, got a question from Isaiah, two questions actually, both fun. What is the significance of Matthew twenty four sixteen and fleeing to the mountains, uh, two-parter, what mountains does he have in mind, and why should they run to them? And there's a few others as a follow-through to this. The mountains he has in mind are the mountains of Edom in particular. Uh, Modern-day Petra encapsulates some of these things, but it's mostly just the valley across what would be modern-day Jordan. Um, in proximity to what Jesus and who Jesus was talking to and what he was talking to them about, he was mentioning in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 15 and 17 onwards, the abomination that that causes desolation, which he references from the prophet Daniel and says, if you read this, just make sure you understand. You can check this out in more detail in Daniel chapter 8 through 11, but what's key in understanding this is that much like the time in history Daniel was prophesying in an immediate sense, the guy who, I guess, modeled what the Antichrist will one day repeat, uh, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV, or if you want to be uh, funny, you can call him Epimenides if you want. Uh, let me know if you want to know what it means. But that was a nickname given to him. Uh, he did not like the Jewish people. There's no other way to slice it. And in order to enforce his Greek culture basically being shoved down the throats of the Jewish people to secure his authority in that region, they had been in a land war with the northern, uh, I think it was the Potomac Empire at the time. Uh, Alexander the Great's generals wanted land, so take that for what you didn't have the best succession plan (laughs) no but uh these guys were fighting each other he established rule over the regions that had the jews in them and he wanted them to be greek and so in order to enforce this he not only set up an altar to zeus which he thought he was uh in the temple of god but also murdered the current high priest serving at the time um i'm trying to remember the high priest's name it was started with an o and he was the third in his family with that name we'll clarify in a moment maybe the elder can mention in the comments but historically this is what was going on also to i guess double down on the ante he sacrificed a pig on the altar of God, where the sacrifice was supposed to be made in order to defile it, and saying, this is our religious turf now. So all the Jews in Jerusalem understood there's a new sheriff in town, and he ain't Christian, so to speak. And in order to enforce this as well, we have documents. This is going to be pretty graphic, but necessary for the point of uh, Jewish... Onias. Onias, thank you. Yeah. Uh, two Jewish women who circumcised their children. They were obeying a Jewish custom, and since um, Antiochus wanted everyone to be Greek, not Jewish, he punished these women as a warning to the rest of the city by tearing the baby, uh, both the babies, into pieces, putting them on the mothers, and making them walk around the city with their entrails before hanging them. So, horrible, horrible stuff. In the book of Zechariah, we're also told that when this man of sin, the cruel king of the north, Daniel refers to him as, is going to rise to power, we understand this is the beast from the sea or the Antichrist, he will wipe out, I think it's two-thirds of the Jewish people that are in existence at that time, and the latter part will be saved. But the point of emphasis Jesus is making is when you see that, notice, when you see that, why would Jesus speak in the future tense of an event that happened 175 years before his birth? 
And the reason is there's an expectation of something like that happening again. We haven't seen it. Obviously, there are things that have been compared to it, but the text is very explicit that what Antiochus did the Antichrist is also going to literally do. We note this as the halfway point of the tribulation. So when Israel is told to flee into the mountains, it's literally to escape mass persecution and death with no bars withheld. The same kind of suffering that Judas Maccabeus and his sons endured when they were fighting the Roman hoplites for a full year. Now, all that again being said, this is a very dangerous time in history. It's prophesied to be a very dark time in history. But when Israel is being told to flee to the mountains, there's a lot of provision and hints that are being made, some in the book of Isaiah and others, that note God will provide for his people in the wilderness. And this is why he encourages them, head east, because that's where I'm going to meet you. We can talk more about the locations of when Jesus will return in his second coming, why he comes first from Edom, he'll appear first to his people, then engage the armies of the Antichrist in a series of battles. But the point being made is that Isaiah, it's referencing them to avoid the persecution that's going to come from the abomination that causes desolation. It's mentioned in the next and previous verses. Uh, Also note the mountains he has in mind, the regions of what we call modern-day Jordan. Back then they would have been Edom. Um, And then as a follow-through, he wants to know, will there even be mountains in the tribulation? Since in Revelation 16, it says that every mountain fell and every every island fell and every mountain was uh, flattened, basically. So how can they flee at the end of the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation? How do we keep this chronology going? Right. So the events that Sean's quoting right now, they're happening at the middle of the tribulation. What you're referencing is something that happens at the end. We don't know exactly when that earthquake is going to happen. Chronologically, John says it's the final judgment. So it might happen like right before Jesus comes back. Some people actually think that it is him coming back uh, because there is a reference in the Bible to Jesus touching his foot on the Mount of Olives and splitting it in half. So uh, it's very likely that that is the earthquake that is described as being poured out by the seventh angel. We don't really know. Uh, But regardless, we do know it's going to be after that midpoint of the tribulation. Yeah, so just note the chronology, and we're taking a literalist, Zionist, (laughs) a non-preterist at least, approach towards the Bible, that as it lays out, the Antichrist will appear at the beginning of the tribulation. He'll reveal himself and claim worship as God, Antiochus Epiphany style, at the halfway point, and he will be ultimately deposed and dethroned at the end. The fleeing that the Jews are told and encouraged to do, God's people, get out of there, is at the halfway point, not at the end. And if you take another approach, then I guess we'll have to start from scratch. But this is the view we take. Let us know if that helps, Isaiah. Now, um, oh boy, Isaiah uh, says, commenting on the point, I hope the Antichrist isn't going to take two women and abort their babies before hanging them. I guarantee you he will do much worse. There's no other way to put that, but the point still stands. The good news is God will hold him accountable for everything. Uh, Here's a question from S.A. who wants to know, um, this isn't regarding the podcast you had with uh, our assistant pastor, Bo Olette. Before we get into it, could you clarify what that's all about, if people want to listen? Yeah, yeah. So me and Bo, we do a Running Light podcast. It's available on SoundCloud as well as our website, runninglight.org. 
Um, essentially, we talk about issues of sexuality and sensuality in regards to the Bible. So uh, it's, it's a little interesting of a podcast. It's definitely not for kids. It's not as family friendly as this one. We do get into stuff. We try to be as uh, scriptural in our communication, and our, our verbiage as we can. But we are getting into some more dicey territory and we're going to be talking about some cultural things so uh yeah but uh, if you guys if that sounds up your alley if it sounds like something you want to get into and engage more uh readily with what's happening sexually in our culture that's where you can listen to it yeah if you're doing outreaches at college campuses or if you have uh, children or siblings that are in this sort of lifestyle it would be a great resource uh he wants to know in regards to that um you had a conversation with a friend who's in a homosexual lifestyle, and he wants to know what is the best way to have a gay friend without mm -hmm. encouraging their lifestyle or saying that you approve of it. And, of course, there's the caution of offending them, turning them off, uh, especially if they're in a marriage relationship. So uh, how do you tactfully approach someone who either doesn't claim the gospel and therefore shouldn't be held to it, or B, does claim the gospel but lives opposed to it? Yeah, no, very good question, and there's a lot of gray in that question as well. So when I first met this individual, he actually was uh, he was living a celibate lifestyle. So he would uh, refer to himself as a gay Christian, but someone who was living in celibacy. So what he meant by that is that he only had sexual urges for people of his same gender. But he was resisting them and saying, I'm going to live a celibate lifestyle. I'm not going to have any type of sexual relationships because I don't have any correct desires. I don't want to be with a woman. Uh, later on, he actually ended up dating a girl and then he moved to California and then he went deep into the homosexual lifestyle. Uh, remain Christian. I wonder how that happened. Yeah, yeah remain Christian, but uh, in, in his own line of reasoning, remain Christian, but went into that lifestyle pretty whole hog. And I think he was actually with one of these more famous homosexual pastors, Matthew Vines, for a time. Uh, he, he actually might have married him. I, I would have to ask for clarification from Bo on that regard. But, but the right. interesting scenario is you've got someone who claims to be Christian but fell into sin. Now, note, we wouldn't say he lost his salvation any more than if you or I engaged in me, say, for instance, falling to pornography or you in any other regard. But if we're talking about someone who is doing that with their lives, we do acknowledge that it's sin. Yeah. The key is, how do you talk to someone who's just as much a sinner as you, but in a unique way? Yeah, and there is a distinction that some people miss. So in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul talks about not eating or having relationships with people who are claiming Christianity, but they're engaging in really immoral behaviors. What he's talking about is he's talking about a church disciplinary model. He's saying that you should put them out of the fellowship of believers. You shouldn't eat with them. They shouldn't be, because that's what Christians did back in the day. They ate when they, when they came together, and they, they had the Lord's Supper, and they spent time in the Word and fellowshipping with one another. That was a big part of their services. Paul's saying, and by the way, eating in that culture was a sign of communion with someone. You're saying that I am sharing with you in lifestyle. I'm sharing with you in heart. We are allied. We are together. Paul is saying, don't do anything culturally with that person that would denote that you are approving of their lifestyle, that you are on their side in any particular way. They need to be put out of your fellowship. Another now, example would be in, say, for instance, in 3 John, where it says, don't even greet these people that right. deny our Lord. Now, right. It's not saying you aren't allowed to say hi to Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> it's making a point of that approval. That's right. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So where that line is, is kind of up to your conscience. So some people will say, well, if you claim to be a Christian and you're in this alternative lifestyle, I have to lovingly cut ties with you. I have to say, I love you. I care about you. But I genuinely think that what you're doing is killing you. I think it's drawing you away from God. And I can't watch that happen. I can't watch you do that to yourself. So I'm, I'm not going to have a relationship with you. Uh, if you turn around and you decide that you agree with me, I'm more than happy to reconcile with you. But that's where I stand. Some people do that. I don't see anything necessarily wrong with that. That that might be your conscience, that might be your conviction, and that's how you're going to handle it. Other people would go on the other side and say, well, no, I am just going to be very upfront with them and tell them, like, I don't approve of your lifestyle. Um, I'm going to draw boundaries around how we hang out. Uh, one of my, uh, someone very close to me, they have a uh, daughter who's in the gay lifestyle, and they've told her, we love you, we care about you, but you cannot bring your partner over to our house. That's just one of the boundaries that we have. Uh, you can, we can go somewhere else and hang out with them. Like we'll go eat dinner with you guys or something like that. But we just have a very strong conviction that we don't want you guys in our house. We don't want to be approving of it in that way, right? So you'll have to have some sort of a boundary so that you're not approving of the lifestyle. Some people go a little bit too far and they're actually hanging out at parties in which people are engaging in some not so great behaviors. And they're like, well, I'm just trying to outreach to this person. Yeah, you might be compromising a little much on that part. So that you're going to have to set up some sort of a boundary to draw a line between you and that person's lifestyle. Uh, again, that's a conscious issue. However, what can't be compromised is the fact that you are being clear with them about where you stand on that behavior. Uh, now, if you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, right, so they're in this kind of alternative lifestyle, but they're not a Christian at all, they don't claim Christ in any particular way, then you treat them like you would treat any other non-believer, right? Uh, that doesn't really matter, because if someone, even if someone is married, has kids, and lives out the Judeo-Christian kind of normal monogamous life, they're still lost, they're still against Christ, and so you have a relationship with them, but you recognize that I need to be outreach to this person. I'm not beating them over the head with it, but I am letting them know that God is real. He is uh, the true and living God, and he loves them and wants a relationship with them. Now, once again, depending on the level of all of lifestyle that that person's leading, you may have to make some judgment calls there as well. So with my friends, for instance, a lot of my buddies uh, like to drink. <laughs> they like to drink a lot. And so when I hang out with them, I have to sometimes navigate that. I have to navigate do I want to go to the bar with them? Do I want to go uh, to the club with them? Even though if I'm going to be sober, do I really want to put myself in that environment? Uh, when I was younger, I did. Now that I'm older and I have a kid, I'm like, mm, I wouldn't do that anymore. And uh, when I was younger, I was like, yeah, you guys come over if you're drunk. Now I'm kind of like, once again, I got a wife, I got a kid, can't do that anymore. So things change as situations and seasons of your life change. But yeah, it's, it is a conscious issue. And I know that might not sound like the most satisfying answer for you, essay, but I, I do hope it helps you navigate this. Well, it's just a matter of keeping the categories in line. When we're talking about, you mentioned 1 Corinthians 5, and you also use the word judgment. When people say, don't judge me, they don't know what that word means. Judgment means to come to conclusions. That can be positive or that can be negative. Approval is a judgment. Dis approval is a judgment, and noting as well, judicial 
measurings are also judgments. You have to note each one in context. And when Paul is noting this, understand when he says that we don't judge those who are outside, it doesn't mean we aren't allowed to come to objective conclusions about morality. Let me read the whole passage and note this point, not just about church discipline, but also a measure of conscience. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or, notice it's not just sexuality, with the covetous, extortioners, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. People who don't know Jesus don't act like they do. Just remember that. But then he goes on to say, but I have now written to you not to keep company, this is in regards to the church, with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Now here's the key, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? This is in reference to fellowship with God. Do you not judge those who are inside? This is a hypothetical question building up the of course given the last three verses. But the point being made is this, those who are outside God judges. Therefore, and he quotes the uh, book of Deuteronomy here, put away from yourselves the evil person. This is in regards to the congregation of Israel, people who knew the law and that they were violating it. But notice that passage, those who are outside God judges. This isn't that, you know, Kim Kardashian meme was saying, only God can judge me, and then them replying, that should scare you. The point of emphasis is our motivation and how we see them, because regarding brothers, people who have fellowship with the Lord, our desire is what? For them to be restored and renewed in fellowship with God. For those who are on the outside of the relationship with God, they're facing the judgment of God. That should be our one and only concern, which, as Peter said, if you have a heterosexual, <laughs> you don't have a saved person. If you have a monogamous heterosexual, you don't have a saved person. If you have someone who doesn't know Jesus, you have someone who is under the wrath of God. So whether I'm talking to someone who's gay or straight, or I'm talking to someone who's hedonistic or stoic, <laughs> I don't know. It's ultimately down to, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. If on the other hand they say, oh, I know Jesus, I receive him as my Lord. Really? Why don't you do the things that he told you to do? This is how you then would talk to a Christian. Well, that's not what that means. That's referring to pederasty. My husband, I guess, Matthew Vines, explained it to me, and he'll be in judgment before God for that. But the point being made is this. When we're talking to people, we need to remember these are people, and their relationship with God should dictate the vocabulary. How do we see them? Either needing mercy from God or needing to fear God. Understand the difference between the two, and I think these will fall in line. Um, we have a few email questions we want to get to before time eludes us. This is a uh, follow-through on a question we answered, I think, on Monday. Uh, Adrian Van Vactor was with us, and he made an illustration regarding the Trinity. Notice, not about the Trinity, regarding the Trinity. That water can consist—this is the being of the H2O molecule, water—can exist in three forms. There is vapor, there is liquid, and there is ice, a solid. So if we understand that being and person are two different things categorically, how it manifests and what it is substantively, it's not a contradiction. What we want to make sure for all those listening here today is that Adrian, and he'd be the second person to say this since I'm the first at this moment, was not describing the Trinity. 
because if that were to be accurate, one H2O molecule would have to be simultaneously and independently at the same time, water, vapor, and solid, a uh, ice molecule. Obviously, that's not how that works. If we were to compare anything in creation to the Trinity, you're already cringe, as the kids say, because nothing is like the Creator. That's how it's supposed to be. He's not of time, he's not of space, he's not of matter. So make sure that we don't confuse those illustrations. Now, following through on that, God being spirit, um, Yari had a question about uh, regarding to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. What do we look like? Now, obviously, movies and stuff portray disembodied spirits as just beings of various forms of light that kind of take the outline and shape of the people that they once were, their bodies, if you will. Um, what's wrong with that approach? Yeah, so it's kind of a, yeah, I hate to put it this way, it's, it's, like, it's a nonsensical question, uh, because what you're saying is what does something look like that can't be perceived with eyes? So that would be like asking, what does purple smell like? Uh, there's really no answer to that question in a satisfactory way. Now, obviously, there is some way to perceive spiritual beings uh, in their spiritual form, right? So sometimes, oftentimes what spiritual beings do to us humans is they denigrate themselves in a way that we can perceive them. They right? take on physical. That's right, uh, and that's how we perceive them. But that's not how they naturally are. They're just doing that so that we can perceive them. In their natural state, obviously, there is a way that they perceive one another. So, for instance, in the book of Job, you see heaven, right? You see a heavenly description of God and the angels and Satan, and these are all purely spiritual beings, and they're obviously able to perceive one another, and they're able to communicate with one another, and there's distinctions between them. What do they look like? Once again, it's just a nonsensical question because they don't look like anything. When we say something looks like something, what we mean is that our eyes perceive it in a particular fashion. You cannot, your eyes cannot perceive the spiritual. They're not designed to do that. Uh, this is also why, you know, many people who we use that fancy word anthropomorphic, when they're anthropomorphic, that's giving human qualities to something that is not human, right? Personifying. Them. That's right. Personification <laughs> is the word. We're personifying them. When there's depictions of God seated on a heavenly throne, some Mormons will say, aha, see, God has a body, because how can you sit on a throne unless you have a body? I say, well, no, 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 that is just a description of a spiritual being who is in a position of power and authority. Yeah, the is Psalms he, say that he'll cover you with the shadow of your wings. Does that mean God's a chicken? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't have some stylish chair that he sits on for all of eternity. Uh, this is a depiction, again, of God's authority. It is not a depiction of how God actually looks, because God doesn't look any particular way. This is why uh, God specifically tells the people of Israel not to make any likeness of him. Now, he doesn't say, don't do it because I don't want you to worship it. That's part of the reason. But the bigger reason is, what would you make it look like? Right? There's nothing, anything you make it look like doesn't look like me because I don't have a form in that sense. I right? don't look. I don't look, right? I don't look like anything. So it, it is, I hate to put it in that way, but that's what we have to accept in our human limitations, that there is going to be a form, a perception of spiritual beings we just have no concept, zero concept of what that perception would be like. 
All right. Uh, and then as a follow through, not in that topic, but in another issue from the same questioner, uh, what was the original relationship of Adam and Eve like? Was it complementarian, egalitarian, or some other Aryan? <laughs> uh, yeah, let me define terms. So complementarian is a fundamental belief that men and women are equal fundamentally, but they have particular differences put in them, inerrant differences that cannot be uh, taken away. And these differences make them distinct. However, they have particular roles that complement one another, kind of like peanut butter and jelly. What's better, peanut butter or jelly? Well, you can't say one is better than the other. They're different, but those differences complement one another. Egalitarianism is the belief that men and women are fundamentally the same in every particular way. They can do everything that one another does, and therefore they have no fundamental distinctions that make them different. Now, the, the big one that you have to contend with is, well, what about the ability to bear children? Paul, among other things. Among other things. Paul points to that one as a pretty big way to recognize that obviously the roles of men and women are different, and there's nothing you can do about that. They are clearly different when it comes to the raising of the family, which is the fundamental unit within the scriptures as well as in reality. And Paul is saying that obviously there are different roles because the woman is the one that bears the child. The husband can't do that. So, Or nourish the child or protect said child in specific ways through gestation and on it goes. That's right. So we can know definitively that they did have a complementarian relationship because Eve had a womb. She was the one that was that had the capacity to bear children. Adam didn't. So there had to have been a complementary relationship. And also note as well, this is backtracking from what we knew, the curse in Genesis 3 wasn't just an introduction of negative things, it was a distortion of presently good things. So when we're told, and the Elder and I talked about this yesterday regarding uh, um, Eve's desire would be for her husband, and he will rule over her. Both relationships were perverted. Adam would abuse his authority, no longer having a perfect nature. A wife's submission to her husband is now a risk, mm -hmm. right? And at the same time, a desire, uh, her um, the woman's desire will be for her husband. She will seek to usurp that power, to dominate over him, just like we see it used in the next chapter regarding Cain and sin. So if we piece this all together. What was introduced? Well, obviously, pain in childbirth and futility in labor. Those were physical aspects that weren't there before. But if we look at the social dynamics, were those introduced? No, they were twisted. A, a relationship wasn't <laughs> introduced at the fall. It was distorted at the fall, just like between Adam and Eve and God, and between Adam and Eve with each other. And we also have to remember that the distinction between man and woman was to be reflective of the Trinity. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Yep. And the Trinity is a complementarian relationship, right? The Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Son. The Son takes on flesh and dies for our sins, the Father does not. And the Father is the head of the Son. The Son is not the head of the Father. So the they Son have submits a... to the Father's authority, and the Spirit also submits to the Son's direction because of the authority given to Him by the Father. Right, exactly. So when you have a complementarian uh, unit within the Trinity, that gives us an understanding that it can't possibly, male and female relationships can't possibly be egalitarian because they're to be reflective of the Trinitarian dynamic. Yeah, so... If we were to then moralize the, and this is for this, the Iron Manning sake of those who are pro-egalitarian, uh, what would their approach be to Scripture, and where would we ask questions, since we obviously take a different view? Right, so I think the egalitarian position, and giving them as much credit as I can, what they would say is, well, things cannot be distinct, different, and equal. 
there has to be certain roles that are superior to one another, and they'd especially harp on the one uh, that's hierarchical, meaning that the husband is the head of the wife. They would look at that and say, like, clearly, if the husband's the head, then he is superior to the wife. Now, there's no passage that says that. I, I'm not aware of any scriptural reference that would suggest that, but the scriptures actually seem to say the opposite. In Philippians chapter 2, when it talks about the son's submissive role, it actually says that for this reason. For what reason? The reason of Jesus not considering equality with God the Father to be something to held on to, but instead to empty himself into the form of a servant. That decision, that humble decision, was the reason why he has the name which is above all names, right? So interestingly, it was Jesus' submission and his position as being the one who humbles himself even to the point of the cross, that means that the Father elevates Jesus as the name above all names, that we know God through Jesus, right? So we absolutely have a relationship with God through Jesus. That's an amazing point. Uh, We don't know God the Father's name. Notice we just call him God the Father. We know Jesus' name. We know Son's name, right? That is the name that saves. In the name of Jesus, people are saved. We pray in the name of Jesus. We uh, People cast out demons in the name of Jesus. It is Jesus' name that is elevated above all other names. That is because of his uh, humility role. So um, again, it isn't. I, I don't know of any good biblical reference to say that hierarchy is inherently bad. This comes from our culture. I don't know of any scriptural background for it. Uh, hierarchy is obviously something that is present in the Trinity, so therefore it would have to be present within the creation of the Trinity. But note, it presupposes a perfect nature. In a fallen, sinful state, there are, of course, guidelines that need to be addressed, and this is the concern for egalitarians. We emphasize their innate equality at the expense of roles. We don't think the compromise is needed. If you mess up, you mess up. You don't rewrite the system. You go back to what the system's supposed to be. Uh, Last question before we sign off. Kurt wants to know if someone loses a hand or an eye, do they go to heaven like that, or are they completely healed? Uh, Misunderstanding of Matthew 5, let me read it. Uh, It says, it is better, this is verse 29, uh, it is better for you to uh, pluck out your right eye and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you to enter for one of your members to perish, then your whole body be cast into hell. Now notice he doesn't mention going into heaven, lame. He says it's better than to lose this and enter into life. Doesn't mean enter into life without the eye. It's making that point. So Kurt, just remember Jesus is working through contrasts of value. You'd rather preserve your relationship with God than uh, keep it and lose God. If on the other hand we note, what about in uh, Revelation 1 and Zechariah 12 where it says that they will look on him whom he pierced. How will they know he's pierced if Jesus doesn't have the marks of crucifixion. I think A, he'll be unique in that regard, and B, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, the body will be new and restored. That would be our position. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.